Welcome to today's episode of Fixing Healthcare. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. This season focuses on leadership. Our guest today is an expert in this area. Amy Edmondson is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard School of Business. She's an author of seven books and over 75 articles and case studies. Amy, welcome to Fixing Healthcare. It is wonderful to have you join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Let me start with research that you've done in the past. Mm. and ask you, what is teaming and how does it apply to healthcare? Teaming is, teaming describes the activities of coordinating and collaborating to get the work done. And I use the term teaming as a contrast to teams, which is a noun, which is the a stable group of people who work together day in and day out indefinitely Teaming means working with people you don't necessarily work with on a consistent basis, but are nonetheless interdependent with to get the work done. And healthcare, as you well know, is dependent on effective teaming. And that encompasses everything from effective shift handoffs to inter-role communication and collaboration to make sure that the patients get the, the safest and highest quality care. And if teaming is not happening well, how do you recommend to leaders that they can advance this on behalf of patients? I would recommend going back to basics. Um, Some aspects of teaming um, is about making sure that everybody's on the same page about the work that needs to be done. So just some basic clarity and, and leaders who consistently articulate the messages of what we're all about and what what needs to be done. So clarity with an updating uh, that goes on or, or setting or at least doing the first step. Then I'll talk a lot about two factors that really need to be present for effective teaming. One is psychological safety, and I'll define that and come back to it in a moment. And the other is mutual accountability. A psychological safety des- describes a state in which people believe their voice is welcome. Not that they believe it's easy to speak up or point out an error or ask for help, but that they understand it's safe. It's what we do around here. And that, of course, is crucial for teaming because you really don't want errors to, to, to happen. You don't want things to fall through the cracks that were supposed to be done I assumed you were doing or you assumed I was doing. So it's about making sure that candor and speaking up and you know clear, consistent communication is available at all times. Mutual accountability is a shared sense that we owe each other updates and commitments to do our part and mutual awareness of how my part 
intersects with your part, right? So it's it's a way of working that both feels accountable to the team, but also um, expects others to feel that as well. As you know, doctors are paid on a fee-for-service basis. And on the other hand, sometimes uh, the medical groups are paid on a capitated, a single rate to an entire team of mm-hmm. physicians to provide care to a population. As a business school professor, do you have a view between mm-hmm. what fee-for-service can do versus what capitation might be able to accomplish? Well, I do, but I have to say this is not my area of expertise. It's This is me as a person whose area of expertise is interpersonal dynamics and leadership, but the built-in incentives for a fee-for-service environment have obvious flaws. I mean, one could say there's there, there's no perfect answer and there's flaws in, in any system, but I think fee-for-service as a system clearly, whether you are conscious of it or not as a, as a physician, clearly creates incentives to do more and, and particularly to do those things for which one is paid more. And this does not have to rest on a character flaw. This is, you know, human survival. And it, it, it is not the case that um, most physicians are overpaid, uh, but, but to have, to have your compensation tied to the number of services you provide, which may or may not always be in the best interest of the health of the patient, is seems to me clearly a flawed design. As you were talking about teaming, I was thinking about the culture of medicine, the culture that doctors learn in medical school and in residency across an entire decade. Mm. And it elevates individual autonomy mm. and intuition. It seemed that they are contrary, conflicting yeah. with the goals and approaches that in your research you've shown to be so effective. Do you have thoughts about, mm. again, what leaders should be doing of institutions, hospitals, medical groups yeah. to somehow shift this culture? You know, I, I first want to say I heartily agree. I think much of the training in medicine um, inadvertently emphasizes a very individualistic mindset of, you know, you are a professional. You are being trained in a in a profession that has expertise, that has answers, that has, you know, all sorts of really important solutions for really challenging moments in people's lives. Um, and it's outdated, right? It's an outdated mindset because maybe once upon a time, the horse and buggy doctor was really out there practicing on his own. And there was only so much he could do, by the way, um, for you, but he did his best um, to deliver that. And, And the mindset endures into the 21st century where healthcare delivery is an enormously complex um, multifaceted, multidisciplinary, multi-role uh, delivery system that only works when people are quite aware of what other people in the system and other parts of the system are also up to. One of the aspects of medicine is that it's very hierarchical. And in many ways that is similar to an academic institution. There are titles and clearly defined power differentials. 
How do you see teaming being promoted in a hierarchical culture? You know, that's a great question. And and many people, I think, understandably think of hierarchy as antithetical to teaming. Uh, but that's not quite right. right. Teaming, in fact, not only can, but must happen in a hierarchical context. So I'm not anti-hierarchy. I'm not anti um, you know the 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 status and um, educational and training differences that that happen in medicine that happen for 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 useful purposes, right? So it's I want to tell you a story that explains the following point, which is that hierarchy is not the problem. It's how hierarchy is managed that matters. Now, the story is just a, a, a research project that I did with Ingrid Nemhard, who's a very spectacular professor at Wharton, and she was long ago my PhD student. We studied 23 NICUs in North America, the US and Canada, all of which were actively and formally engaged in quality improvement projects. And one of the things we found right off the bat in our, in our data analysis, we had survey data and observational data, but in the survey data, we found that there were, in the population of 1,100 clinicians in our, in our sample, there were statistically significant differences in psychological safety based on status hierarchy. And, and more specifically, uh, and this is really, again, a sense that you have permission to speak up, um, that, that people are eager to hear what you have to say. Not surprisingly, the physicians had the highest level of psychological safety. The nurses were next, and after that were the respiratory therapists. Now, that was just, you know, that's just a descriptive finding, and we thought it was expected and we weren't all that surprised by it. But this is what did surprise us. When we looked unit by unit all, at all 23 NICUs separately, what we found was some of these organizations did not have any difference across role groups in their degree of psychological safety, their willingness to offer their thoughts. It was in fact, absolutely flat across role groups, which meant, of course, that in some of the other, more than half of the sample, the differences across role groups were, were quite steep indeed to create this pattern in the overall data set. Now, that was interesting, but so far not you know all that useful. What we saw next was that those with the flat, high level of psychological safety, you know, essentially the hierarchy didn't impact the psychological safety. Those units, three years into the quality improvement work, had an 18% improvement in morbidity and mortality compared to the alternatives, the, the, their counterparts. So that struck us as very important. And so then we asked the question, well, what is it that explains the difference? Like, why do some of these, because they all have the same training, they all have the same essential layout, you know, resources, everything you can imagine. They're all similar organizations. And what we found was that the only real difference we could see was that the way others rated the medical director, we threw out the medical director's own self-ratings, but the way everybody else rated the medical director on the following attributes, sort of, um, we called it inclusive leadership, and it basically meant they asked questions. It also meant that they acknowledged their own limitations. They'd say things like, I might miss something, I need to hear from you. So their status was recognized. The hierarchy was intact, but the way those at the top of this little hierarchy acted with others made all the difference. 
So this is a long-winded way of saying, if you want teaming, and I believe you must for the delivery of high-quality, safe care, you must use your hierarchy well. And if you are a leader, and that's what this is all about, you must be curious. You must be inviting other voices in. You must be giving people feedback. It's not to, I'm not saying that everything they have to say will be helpful and useful. That's where learning and, and, and ongoing development come, comes in. But don't worry about the existence of hierarchy. Do worry about the impact that hierarchy can have when it's under-managed or under-led. It sounds as though the ego of that leader can often get in the way of accomplishing the best outcomes. Was this consistent That's right. with your findings? That's exactly right. And ego is really a cover for insecurity more often than not. I mean, that's not part of my research, but I think many people recognize that intuitively. When someone seems to come across as having a great deal of ego, it's often a mask for fear. Patients and their families often feel like outsiders when they're in the healthcare setting, such as, you know, a hospital or doctor's visit. They may even be, in fact, going through the most difficult or scary thing they've ever experienced in their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them just accept this as the way things are, not knowing how much things will cost until after the fact mm -hmm. they get a bill in the mail they don't understand, or maybe even seeing loved ones suffer through needless rounds of chemotherapy in a terminal cancer situation when hospice care might actually be the best option. I feel like in many of these situations, patients are scared or don't even feel it's appropriate to ask questions such as, how much is this going to cost? Is there a cheaper option? Uh, is the risk versus the reward versus uh, more rounds of chemo instead of hospice care actually worth it? Um, how do you feel patients can be more empowered to ask these kinds of questions and take more charge of their own care and the care of their loved ones? You know, it's a great question and, and not one, I think, with a simple one-size-fits-all answer. But it is a leadership issue. And, and this is where, it, this can be leadership at the bedside in academic medical centers. This might be the senior residents' leadership roles and ability, but it is a leadership role, I think, to be very, very clear that the patient's voice is not only welcome, it is in some cases the most important voice. We, we need to hear from you. We need your questions. And, and we as, as expert clinicians may take for granted something that you don't even know. So make that invitation early and often. Please say there's so many paths that lie ahead. And, and in order for us to co-create the best path for you, um, we need to know what's on your mind, what questions you have, you know, what 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 goals you have, what's most important to you and your family. I know that you've researched and you teach around things like the Challenger disaster and mountain climbing problems. <laughs> Are there is there a specific example you'd like to use for listeners of the ways that either the approach to teaming can go well or be undermined? Sure. In fact, I do. Um, I teach both the Challenger and the Columbia shuttle cases, and I often teach them with with healthcare folks and and healthcare leaders. And the you know incoming belief to a case study discussion of one of these cases is, oh, this is very different than us. By the time they're going to leave this discussion, they they realize, oh, this is just a mirror image of us. There's. Um, it's a very different environment. Obviously, sending rockets into space is, is different than caring for patients, but hierarchy matters, is taken very seriously. 
The work is complex. The, there's uncertainty, there's high risk, there's life and death consequences. And you begin to realize, oh, we have more in common than we don't. And as you rightly point out, Robbie, both of these cases are breakdowns in teaming, um, by which I really mean breakdowns in high quality, candid conversations about uncertain issues, where the issues where there's uncertainty and high stakes, that's patient care in, 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 you know, in many, many instances. And unless you're having a high quality, candid, scientifically rigorous conversation, you're, you're at, at some risk. As you know, the modern patient safety efforts are focused on system errors, not individual failures. Mm. And yet after more than a decade of leaders saying the right things, 200,000 mm. Americans still die annually from preventable medical errors. Do you have any thoughts on how hospitals can take your mm. research on teaming and make progress when it comes to patient safety? Um, yes. And, and I wonder, I mean, I do think that, that we are probably better, you are probably better now than you were 20 years ago at measuring um, and not hiding mishaps that occur. So it, it, you know, it may, it may not in fact be the case that the sort of, um, despite all the attention to the phenomenon, you know, we haven't gotten anywhere. I believe the conversation and the dialogue has changed quite a bit and including really being much less likely to hide under the rug things that are hideable under the rug. So we'll just, we'll give you that credit um, uh, to begin with. But things that um, my research on on teaming um, that, that leaders can do to just sort of continue to do better at, prevent, at avoiding preventable harm. And I want to say one is is messaging, and I've alluded to this already, but but let me say it in a slightly different way and at a slightly different level. If you are running an integrated healthcare delivery system, or if you are, you know, a, a chief of a of a, of a surgery in in some domain or anything, um, if you're in a, a critical leadership role, think about your messaging. Are you inadvertently messaging? that you better be perfect or else, you know, not, no one would ever say it exactly like that, but is that the, is that the implied and maybe even sometimes overt message you're sending or is the message that we work in a complex error prone system and things could go wrong. And the more open we are and the speedier, the speedier we are with our openness, the better off we all are. Right? So is, is the messaging, in, order, in other words, consistent with the nature of the work, the nature of the reality that you all face? Or is the messaging inadvertently kind of a vestige from another era um, that, that implies only perfection is welcome around here? Because I haven't yet met any perfect people. So that's sort of job one is kind of making sure that the messaging includes a recognition of where you actually work, which is in this complex error prone domain. And, and, and number two, overtly and explicitly seeking input. You know, I might miss something I need to hear from you. Uh, asking good questions. What are we missing? What other ideas do you have? Who has a different perspective, right? The kinds of questions that just convey 
curiosity and a genuine interest in what others might have seen that you missed. And finally, responding in a way that has fully in mind the future, right? Meaning respond in a way that won't just shut voice down um, and won't, um, you know, respond in a way that will encourage people to keep being honest and to keep teaming with each other. We're swimming upstream, right? We're swimming upstream in healthcare against a tide of, you know, human nature and complexity and um, novelty and, and, you know, the need for customized care plans and all the rest. It's, it's, it's really, really hard work. So make that discussable and make it a learning journey. It is, it is really a learning process, not a mere execution process. I ask because of your work on psychological safety and how important I think it is. Most of or many of the errors that happen are avoidable right. by following relatively simple approaches. People like your colleague Atul Gawande mm -hmm. have outlined this in the operating room. Uh, we certainly know from Johns Hopkins that there's, I'll say, three to five, maybe seven steps where Patients hospitalized can avoid pneumonia, infections mm. of central lines, pressure ulcers, medication errors. These are not complex set of actions. Yeah. But as I think about it, it's the person at the top who often will skip a step because they don't think it's that important. And they right. think this approach is cookbook medicine. And someone else who may not have the same credentials, maybe lower down in that hierarchy status place can observe it and mm. the likelihood of them speaking up and saying, you didn't put gloves on, you didn't prep appropriately, right. you, you didn't drape. It's just not going to happen in the current medical world as I mm. see it. But I just wonder your thoughts about how that can be acceptable. The OR has accomplished it because there's enough rules and regulations that people can't start operating until a, a timeout has been had. But the rest of the hospital, I think it still remains uh, something that's not as well promoted or respected. And again, you're the world's expert in this. I'm trying to get <laughs> well, thoughts from you about how to well, thank save you. patients' lives and the things that we know we can do. And we I just know, I do. know. I mean, I and and I've been writing about this. I wrote about this in my new book, Be Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well, which really means don't fail when you don't have to. Um, but, and I write about checklists because checklists are a magnificent tool for preventing many preventable failures. Um, but you have to use them with intent, right? You can't, you can't do it in your sleep. There's a famous aviation disaster, Air Florida 90 back in 80, 1982, where the captain in, in the sort of the midst of a blizzard runs through uh, the checklist, anti-ice off, check, you know, like, no, no, no. You know, you know, you want to intervene even all these years later. Um, but because it was it was uh, Air Florida, it was a it was a company that was used to warm weather. So it, if you use the checklist, I mean, if you go through the checklist in your sleep, it's not doing its job and you're not doing your job. So checklists must be used with intent. And I think it's more likely to happen when leaders frame tools like that as as enablers rather than as um, restrictors, right? So when people use frames or, or words like, you know, cookbook medicine, they're essentially saying you're 
trying to dumb it down. You're trying to tell me what to do. And I've got all this education and I've got, you're trying to take away my, my freedom, my clinical judgment. Um, however, you can actually frame checklists and care plans as freeing up your clinical judgment. Right? We're going to sort of just jot down some of the basic stuff so you don't have to think about that, which frees up your big brain for judgment, for looking around, for being aware of the situation and the system, because you don't have to bog it down with like your laundry list. Um, and 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 I think that's a leadership action, like to reframe structures and tools like checklists and, and care paths as the enablers that they can be, but they will not be unless you are viewing them that way. The psychology of it is they are your servant, not your master. And it's truthful. You just mentioned your research on failing and how to fail right is absurd as that concept might mm -hmm. sound. Yes. <laughs> Can you explain to I know, listeners what I know. failing well looks yes. like and why it's so important in medicine? I know it sounds wrong, especially to people in medicine, but but bear with me because um, I think you'll appreciate that what I'm really talking about when I say fail well, um, in medicine, there's two main places where I can think of um, it being not only okay to fail, but desirable to fail. And that's in the laboratory where you're pursuing some leading edge treatment possibility, and you've got a fabulous hypothesis and you've done your homework and you run an experiment and guess what? You might have been right, but you weren't. But that's taking, you were wrong. You failed. That takes you one step closer to the next experiment, which may very likely su succeed. And no one got hurt, right? Yeah, you wasted a little bit of time. You didn't waste time. Sorry, you invested a little time. You had to invest that time. Um, so, and the other place I, I would say that that failures are good in, in healthcare is in the simulator, right? In, in any kind of um, simulation where there's only an artificial patient, not a real human, and you're testing your team's performance in, you know, let's say a really challenging clinical situation, and there's a failure, that is great, right? Because it's a great opportunity to, to take it apart. What happened? You know, what happened here? And how can we do better next time? If this were the real thing, we wouldn't want this to happen. Aviators, of course, do that all the time. They have simulators so that they can stress test their abilities and their team's ability and never be taking risks with real patients in, in you know, in the air. So um, when, when I talk about the science of failing well, I mean, we are always desiring to push our abilities and our knowledge forward. That involves failure in new territory, but make sure you do it in a safe context where real patients are not at risk. And number two, the science of failing well means preventing all or nearly all preventable failures. Human error will always be with us, but with vigilance and teaming, it can be caught and corrected before patients are harmed. So we can, we can, I don't think we can ever make error go away, but we can aim and should aim for zero harm. So, and part of the, you know, the book talks about not only best practices for experimenting in new territory and tolerating the failures that you are bound to experience along the way, but also, and importantly, best practices for preventing preventable failures, which includes checklists and so much more. 
failure is intrinsic, as you say, in medicine. We have to make diagnoses with incomplete information. Mm. We have to perform procedures that often have complications. We go on the list of reasons why um, hundreds of thousands of people end up in American medicine with some kind of failure. You know, you went to Harvard for your undergraduate master's and PhD, and like physicians, you share many of the aversions to failing mm. in these various professional academic pursuits. How can you, or what's your advice to medical students about this inevitability of failure and how they personally should be coping with it? Well, to begin with, I, I can empathize because like so many medical students, I was a good student. I did well in school and I began to feel that my very identity and self depended upon, you know, getting straight A's and, or whatever uh, that, that got you to where you are today. Um, when, and it's a very lonely place to be and a fearful place really, because you're, um, you get to the point where you're so afraid to be discovered as not perfect, which you know, you aren't, that you become less willing to take risks. Now, I think it's hard. It's, you know, by, by signing up for medical school, you have, dis, you have agreed to take risks, right? You've agreed to do really hard things and, and not be good at things along the way while you're working on making yourself better at them. But I think my primary advice, given that reality, is be open about it. Invite others in. There is less burnout, I think more joy, higher quality relationships when we are open about the reality, which is that each and every one of us is a fallible human being. We're going to get some things wrong. We're going to let people down sometimes, but working together, we can be so much more effective than sort of just tied up in knots in our own little heads. So invite others in, be open, be honest, acknowledge your vulnerability not not in a um, sense of weakness, but the vulnerability that we all share to the to being in a volatile, uncertain, complex world. One of the best surgeons I know would have these events when he'd invite colleagues over, and he would show them his pre and post operative results and wow. only allow them to make negative comments. Oh. Only allow them to point out the problems, not to say anything positive about the results that he had achieved. And I think that's a really great way to leave yeah. you the idea of failing because right. imperfection is failing. And invariably right. in the plastic surgery, fixing children with cleft lip and cleft palate, it rarely is perfect. And you can always do better the next time. There's no such thing as perfect. Um, and when we destigmatize our imperfection, great things happen. The COVID-19 crisis mm. overwhelmed our nation, challenged our nurses and doctors. Uh, it was to some extent, you could say, a failure of implementation. How could we have handled it better from a crisis perspective based upon your research? Well, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start we handled it pretty well. I mean, in <laughs> variable, there was a lot, lots of variability, but I think most, most medical centers of which I'm aware were remarkable, right? They, they, they recognized, you recognize that something is happening here. This is hard. This is frightening. 
let's roll up our sleeves, let's do it together. We are in, you know, what made it possible, I think, is it was obviously new territory. If there was no sort of, oh yeah, I, I had a global pandemic once before, so let me just tell you what I know. It was like, oops, we were all explicitly and deliberately in new territory. So I think that helped, but um, you could certainly make the argument that we got there more slowly than was optimal in, um, um, certainly in a, in a national sense and um, and in slowly meaning slowly, we got slowly to telling the truth and we got slowly to um, doing some of the things that we should have done to limit the spread. Um, but the, I think the willingness of people to sort of rise to the occasion was was really quite impressive. I think what's what's even more challenging is is what we face today. If that was if COVID nineteen in March twenty twenty was a sudden crisis, right? Something we didn't see coming. We recognized the the risk. We recognized the danger. We knew we had to act to limit near term harm. Whereas today, I think we face something we could almost think of as a more sustained crisis in healthcare, which is an ongoing period of intense difficulty or uncertainty. And the leadership challenge is oddly harder. I mean, there's much more of a playbook for how do you handle an immediate crisis. And there's much more, people give you much more license to, you know, to, to act and to take risks. Whereas now the job I think of, of leaders in healthcare is to enable sustained resilience and the time frame it's not going to be over anytime soon it's going to go on for a long time and people are at risk of feeling disillusioned you know burned out um and so we need to re-engage people in that experimental mindset that was certainly present in the in the earlier days of covid-19 um and and find new ways to operate um, to preserve resources and and continue to improve quality for the long haul. Americans are increasingly losing faith in the American healthcare system. With the economic woes the average person is facing around the increasing cost of care, increasing drug prices and insurance costs, how confusing and inconvenient kidding care is, um, how can healthcare leaders and political leaders work together to address these issues and restore faith the average American healthcare has in our healthcare system from both an action standpoint as well as a public relations standpoint? I may have forgotten to mention that I don't have a magic wand, um, but I don't. Um, that is, of course, um, an enormously complex issue and a challenging question um, for which I don't think we're going to have one single answer. But wouldn't it be interesting if we could experiment with, you know, pockets of excellence, like pockets where better care, better confidence, you know, better trust in the caregivers is built because of the way we show up, because of the things we try to do. I mean, it's, I don't think you can quickly or maybe even ever figure out how do you change the whole healthcare system and the whole public's perception of it? Ah, not possible. But can we sort of experiment over here with this FHQC over here or this integrated care delivery hospital over there, right? There's, there are bright spots. And when you find a bright spot, shine a light on it, write about it, try to understand what it's doing, try to unpack the potentially better practices that you find there. And 
make sure enough people see it to be able to copy it and see it to understand that there is yes a better way you know your your uh title is that of leadership that's your focus in a in a broad type of way it seems in american medicine today uh building on what you just said that leadership has become very short term the idea of taking risk major transformation moving the reimbursement system moving the structure embracing uh, revolutionary technology in ways that tr create massive improvements in operations. That doesn't seem to be happening very often in very many places. How would you redesign the leadership curriculum to accomplish mm -hmm. it? Well, you know, I think I would um, ensure that the leadership curriculum not only teaches some, you know, basic sort of management concepts and skills, um, but also provides opportunities for growing self-awareness right? to help people understand not just their own good intentions, which they're already well aware of, but the of, of the impact that their actions have on others. Because leadership is really the art of achieving great things through the work of others, right? Not doing it yourself. And, and so... There's a, a kind of humility that you need to learn to not want to just step in and do everything better when when those you lead aren't yet at your level, let's say in an expert sense, but but to have the have the self-awareness to know the impact you're having to really commit yourself to caring more about the development of those you lead in service of the mission of the organization than about how you look, how you come across, or or your own belief that maybe you've got a better answer than anyone else anyway. One last question, Amy. We're about to have another member of every team across the United States. ChatGPT will have a massive oh. impact on <laughs> yeah. society and all of its parts. It's going to empower patients, challenge physicians. As a world expert in innovation, what advice do you have for people inside of medicine? Well, small, safe experiments, right? I, so point one, do not assume you or maybe even anyone at the moment knows all the answers or exactly has a crystal ball for how this is going to play out. Um, it's not going anywhere, obviously. Um, we're going to need to have ChatGPT become a team member and to figure out how best to put that team member to, to good use, I think we're going to have to be open-minded and, and willing to experiment at small scales, you know, in risk, risk, low risk, risk-free environments to see what works and what doesn't be looking for, be looking for those failures in the safe place. So you don't have to have them in the less safe place. I'm amazed by that technology today. It allows people who have never gone to art school to paint in the style of Rembrandt. Mm. It allows people who have never played a musical instrument to create a song in the style of Drake. And it <laughs> is going to allow people who have never been to medical school to be yeah. able to do the things that doctors do, the empowered patient to enter data, to, to allow the 
ChatGPT to provide a diagnosis, one that, at least based upon the research mm -hmm. so far, matches that of physicians. And with the technology becoming twice as powerful every year, by five years from now, it'll be 30 times better than today. I think it's going to create a lot of challenges where the patient may race ahead of the physician mm. and the physician <laughs> and other caregivers are going to have to struggle to keep mm. up and deal with their own concerns around the issues you've raised about psychological sure. safety and other aspects to the patient because patients are not going to care and GP ChatGPT is going to lead the way. I'm just looking for a way that you see that we can accelerate this cultural change to embed many of your research findings inside the culture of medicine. And I'm worried that medicine will be behind the curve instead of leading it. Again, any thoughts you might have about avoiding a crisis? I, I think your your question um, is uh, embeds much much of the answers that I I personally could offer. It's it's it re, and maybe the clearest way to say it is we need to be having these conversations out in the open. We need to in, invite the quiet voices in. We need to acknowledge that we don't know um, and be clear about what matters most you know where where we're heading and how it might work and um be okay with the fact that this is going to take a little while to sort itself out well amy thank you so much i think the idea of being able to us to team as a verb to be <laughs> able to have psychological safety for all the members of that team and to be able and willing to fail in a way that allows us to make innovation, progress, and change. That's a wonderful prescription for medicine. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much again for having me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.